Well, hello, Coastway Church. Good to see you. Welcome, welcome. If you're joining online, welcome to you. If you're right here in the room, welcome to you. My name is Jeremy. I get the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Coastway. We're thrilled and thankful to have you with us, and we're still celebrating after last week. Last week was Easter, and what we did last Easter uh, is we Eastered really well. We celebrated three baptisms, which is the evidence of God at work right here, right now, among His people. I think we should be clapping. Yeah, let's start clapping. It's amazing to see how God is changing lives. He's touching hearts. He's transforming us from the inside out. And how do you know that God is actively working among a people? Well, you know that God is actively working among a people when you see the evidence of lives being changed. And what baptism is, is it is going public and proudly proclaiming that Jesus has touched the deepest part of my greatest need and is transforming me from the inside out. And anytime that somebody gets baptized here at Coastway is we invite them to tell us their testimony. Because the gospel, uh, yes, it is for all people, but it's it's deeply personal, and the way that we get to a place to where we are transformed personally, everybody has a story. And so I just want to share one of those stories that Jay, who was baptized last Sunday, shared, and here's what he had to say when he told his story. He said, I spent decades relying on myself, living for the world. It wasn't until a few years ago that I realized my need for a true, heartfelt relationship with Christ living for Him instead of myself. It wasn't until after being saved I can look back and see, even when I was at my worst, God had His hand on my life, always protecting and providing, waiting on me to wake up and love Him as much as He loved me. He said, I have been saved and I want to be baptized because it's a symbol of Jesus' love for me and my love for Him. It's a picture of death to myself and resurrection in Him of being saved by His grace alone. So you want to know what we're all about at Coastway Church? We are all about the story that I just shared. We're all about seeing Jesus come in close on everyday people like Jay and changing them from the inside out. And here's what's amazing is God gives us two great symbols of His great love for great sinners. And here's those two symbols. Baptism That's the sign of beginning faith in Jesus. The biblical pattern for baptism, I consciously, incredibly, and personally believe, and then I follow through publicly and proudly with baptism by immersion and after conversion. This is the biblical pattern that we see. But then uh, uh, the evidence of God's work in our life doesn't stop with baptism. It continues with what is called communion. So communion is when we are essentially saying, I still do to Jesus. I remember my baptism, I remember the confession that I made way back when, or maybe it was recently, and I still do choose to follow Jesus. I still do choose to put Him first. And so here's what's amazing. Last week we celebrated baptism. This week we're going to contemplate communion at the end of our time together. It's going to be really meaningful. We have a lot to look forward to, and I just want to lead off by praying for us. So bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are still rolling stones away. And that when you walked out of that grave, you invited us to do the very same with you. Thanks to the pardon that you purchased on the cross and in our place, we can be forgiven and we can be free. And we can walk out of spiritual death with new life in you. I thank you for Jay's story. And I thank you for the stories of of those who are going to come forward and receive 
communion today, Lord, that there is that uh, renewal and that reminder of the commitment that you first made to us and the commitment that we have in response made to you. Lord, I pray that we would want you as much as we need you. That today would be a day of personal encounter with your good news and with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so whether you have the Bible on your app or it's in your lap, go ahead and open your Bibles. This is what we do every single week at Coastway, is we open our Bibles and join me in John chapter 14. So what we're doing right now is we're picking up in week six of a series called He Is, where we're beholding Jesus in the Gospel of John. And notice how the, the series is framed. It's not He Was, it's that He Is. And the reason why it's He Is is because he is a ever-present help. He's not just a past tense God where he worked back then or, or, or one day in the past. He's a present tense God where he's wanting to work right here and right now in your life. And so what Jesus does is he emerges and he begins to make these massive claims to the public eye. And he says things that are just a controversial, provocative, it's intended to draw out a response. So he'll say something like, I am the bread of life. And so why would he say that? Because he knows that we're hungry. And he knows that he alone can fill and fulfill. He would say things like, I am the light of the world. And the reason why he would say that is because we're walking in darkness without him. We're like blind men in a room with no light switch. And we're trying to find the light. And he says, no, 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 the only way that you're going to turn off the dark and turn on the light is by opening your eyes to me. And so he says, I'm going to lead you to a life beyond this world. And then he says, hey, I'm the good shepherd. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. Number one, it means we need a lot of leadership. <laughs> we need someone to lead us, to feed us, to know us, to protect us. And here's what he's going to say today. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what Jesus is doing with these claims is he's trying to get us to a place to where we respond. Every single one of these claims is not intended to let you just kind of sit back and, man, just kind of be on the fence about it. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, in, in the, back in the Stone Age, before we were uh, sending text messages, uh, this was like as far back as middle school, we would pass notes. All right, did anybody pass notes in, in middle school? You remember that? Okay, so I don't know if, you know, if you were born like after 2000, I don't know if you still do this or not, or if this is still something that happens. But basically, one of the ways that you would basically gauge the interest of someone who you liked. It's like, hey, do you like me? Check yes, check no. And then there were those who just said, hey, put maybe. Okay, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, there's a very, very small chance. I don't think anybody ever checked that box. But here's, here's what you need to understand. There's no maybe option with Jesus. He's either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. At all. And Here's what's interesting is when you get older, you get a little more intense about the invitation. It's, it's more than just, hey, do you like me? But there's a point when the proposal gets more serious is you meet someone, all right? And you fall in love with that someone. And then you want to spend the rest of your life together with that someone. And then comes the question. You pop the question and the, the, the guy gets down on one knee and he's like, hey, will you marry me. And I just want to ask you, married couples, do you remember that day? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what the weather was like? Do you remember what you were wearing? Any of those things. I can tell you this, I vividly remember the day. It was June 23rd 
of 2011 right beside Lake Junaluska in beautiful western North Carolina with the Blue Ridge Mountains in the backdrop. And so I dropped down on one knee and I asked my now beautiful bride and gift from God, Victoria, will you marry me? And here's what's interesting about it. I expected a response. That's, that's a direct question. That, that's not a question where you're just like, interesting offer. Change the subject. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. That, that's the moment where like, you got you to gotta make a decision. It's, it's like yes or it's no. Unfortunately, for, for my good, for my joy, Victoria said yes. And 11 years later, she's aged like fine wine and just gets better with the years. And I've aged like milk, just as white and a little bit more chunky. So, <laughs> Selah. We're about to read the moment when Jesus proposes to his followers. And I just want to tell you, he's like, I'm not here to be one among many. I'm here to be your one and only, just like the song that we were singing a few moments ago. And here's how he puts it in John 14, 6. Let me just frame it with this verse, and we'll walk through verses 1 through 7 together. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then verse 3, he says, I go to prepare a place to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Here's what you need to understand. This is marriage language. Jesus is saying, hey, I want to be your first, and I want to be your forever, and I want to be in an unbroken relationship, unbroken, unconditional relationship with you. And if you know anything about how the Gospel of John works, chapters 13 really through the end, baby, basically detail uh, the end of Jesus' life. It's like one week in these uh, chapters 12 through like chapter 20. And so it's, it's really fast-paced. It's dramatic. And what's going on right here is Jesus has moved from the public eye to a private set, setting, and he's got one final meal. He's going to share one final message before fulfilling his ultimate mission with his disciples. He's brought them to a very private setting where he can just totally share and show his heart. And that mission that he's sharing is, I came to seek and I came to save my lost love. And here's the whole idea that I want to put in front of you today. It's that Jesus is proposing. And what, what is it that he's proposing? Well, Jesus proposes that we believe in him fully and be with him forever. So here's how the Bible talks about heaven. If there is one area where Christians are just struggling with the marketing campaign out there, it's with heaven. Like we're confused, we don't know what to think, we don't know what it's going to be like, and we're going to talk about this today because Jesus brings it up. It's the hope that he gives to our hearts, it's look, look to heaven. But hey, heaven is less of a place you go and it's more of a person you know. More times than not, when Jesus talks about heaven, he's talking about his presence being with you. He's talking about his kingdom coming down on earth where God's space overlaps with man's space and it becomes a heavenly space. And let me just kind of give you a little bit of context of where we get this idea of Jesus proposing and this being marriage language. This might be a little new to you, but let me just give you a, a little bit of the plot movements of Scripture. You go back in Exodus chapter 6 and you have God's people who are exiled and enslaved under an oppressive nation. And what God says is he says into the oppression, he says into the slavery, hey, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to set you free. 
I'm going to redeem you. And, and the reason why I'm going to do this is so that you can be with me and so that I can be with you. He makes these promises. And all of these promises are the promises of a marriage covenant. So a Jewish traditional marriage, basically that, that would be the four promises that a groom would make to the bride. Is the promises that Yahweh, the Lord God of the Old Testament, would make to his people who were in a place that they could not get out of on their own. And uh, every Passover meal, what would happen is they would remember these four promises. Is they would come around the table and they would rehearse God's faithfulness and they would, they would remember the promise that God said, hey, I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you, which means to buy you back at a great cost to oneself. And what, I, what I'm going to do, the reason why, is because I want to bring you to myself. And so Jesus steps forward on this night with his disciples as a groom proposing to his bride to rescue and redeem from destruction. And here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the, the marriage relationship that we experience on earth as God's highest metaphor for what a relationship with him is supposed to look like. You see, just as two people become exclusively and enduringly united to one another, so with Jesus and his church. And here's the thing about a wedding. They're not cheap. They cost money. So uh, the average wedding in the United States is going to cost upwards of about $20,000. So this this wedding between Jesus and his bride, it's going to cost him everything. So there's a great cost associated to his commitment that he's making to his people. And the cost of the wedding covenant back in Exodus, what was it? Well, it was the shed blood of a spotless lamb, or it was the shed blood of the firstborn son. So the the way that God delivered from death, the way that God brought out of Egypt, you see this in Exodus chapter 12, is he he sent an angel that was going to pass judgment on an evil people. And he says, the the way that you are spared from this angel is if you will take the blood of an innocent lamb and you'll spread it across your doorposts, this will be the symbol that you are walking in faith with me and that you're my people. Or the firstborn son will be punished. And here's what I want you to see about this proposal. As Jesus is proposing, Jesus is preparing to be both. He's preparing to be the lamb of God who when his lifeblood is spread over the doorposts of our life, death passes over and death loses its sting. This is why John the Baptist says, as Jesus is coming forward to be baptized, he says, get your eyes off me. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And this is additionally why he was the firstborn son of God. We see in John 3.16, probably one of the most often quoted verses in all of Scripture, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes will have eternal life. So you got to feel the drama in this moment. Jesus just washed the feet of His disciples. And I love what Eleanor, our daughter, says about uh, this moment. She says, I I would wash any of the disciples' feet except for Peter. Because I I think Peter's feet probably smelled a little worse. I was like, that's an interesting take. But Jesus just washed the feet of His disciples shared a Passover meal, which would become communion. And there's this proposal language all throughout that Passover meal. And what he's doing is he's caring for his disoriented disciples ahead of his departure. 
when he ought to be commanding people to serve him, he's humbling himself and he's serving others. And you just got to think about where he's going with this. He's about to be betrayed. As, as he is saying this, Judas just left the room. And he's handing him over as a traitor to the religious uh, Pharisees of the day who would crucify him. So he's being betrayed. Peter, who says that he would follow Jesus into death, which it's interesting, on this night, Peter would kill for Jesus, but Peter wouldn't die for Jesus. So just because we like go on the offensive sometimes, that doesn't mean that we're all in. It, it, it might mean that we're trying to protect power. So Peter, what does he do? He, he denies Jesus. And then Jesus is condemned to be crucified innocently, tragically, and violently by the Roman regime. And so as you can imagine, everybody's tense and everybody's troubled. And they're like, why is Jesus asking us to put him first, but he's going away? What does this all mean? What will happen next? And it's into this tension that Jesus says, take a look at verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. So what Jesus does right here is he looks at the disciples and he knows that they are troubled. Because here's, what it's, here's what's going to happen. Over the next few hours, it's going to feel like God totally lost control. God does not care. And you know what? If we look at your, our circumstances, a lot of the times, it's fair to think that, right? It's fair to think, man, God has lost control. God doesn't really care about me. I was thinking about this, how many of us are troubled. The last two years have been very troubling. Yes? We've all been there. But I mean, you look at the cost of living, just what it looks like to put gas in your tank or food in your pantry or, or to pay the rent. It can be overwhelming or, or being or knowing someone who's sick or you being, being sick or facing some type of relational conflict or looking ahead into the future and like, I don't know where this is going. And so Jesus offers as a remedy this invitation to lay down our troubles. He says, in these troubling times, Jesus looks at his disciples and he looks at us now and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And we're like, man, that's some nice, happy talk. Okay, Jesus, I'm listening, but how do I do that? He tells us. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. So here's the thing about belief. The, the biblical vision for belief is bigger than mental assent. So belief is more than mental, belief is functional. So, and belief is only as good as the object in which you place it. Okay, so let me give you an example. Have you ever had your heart broken before? Maybe it was by a family member. Maybe it was by a friend. Maybe it was by some old flame. And what you did is you gave them your best and they still left. And so what, why is it that your heart gets broken? It's because you put your belief in someone who was not ready to hold it up. And you were devastated. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will always love you. I will never leave you. And so the belief, it's used multiple times here, and it's this deep idea that I'm not just going to have an idea, I'm going to have an experience. So let me, I think we would all say you should exercise. That's, that's good. Good to get your cardio up. It's good to sweat a little bit. And it's good for you to, you know, maybe lift weights. Do something that's just going to be good for you physically. We would all mentally say that's true. But then not everybody functionally does it. 
And so according to the biblical vision of belief, you don't actually believe you should exercise unless you actually exercise. And it's like, put your, hey, put, put to practice what you profess. Uh, you may have heard the famous story of the tightrope walker over Niagara Falls, Charles Blondin. Uh, this guy, I think he was a little bit, a little bit dumb and a little bit daring, uh, this combination of both. But basically what Blondin did is by 1896, this guy had walked back and forth across Niagara Falls 300 times. And it's estimated that he had crossed 10,000 miles of tightrope during his illustrious career. And there was this one moment whenever he had crossed the falls and there was these crowds that would come and they would congregate and they would be like, how is he doing this? How does he not fall to his death? And he would cross safely and everybody would cheer and he would be like, who thinks that I could put a person on my back and walk across the tightrope? And everybody erupts. They're like, yes, you could do it. You could do it. And he's like, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> and it's amazing that that's the same invitation that Jesus extends to us. Jesus, you can take me out of fear. Jesus, you can, you can deal with all, all the failures. Uh, Jesus, you hold my future. But then he's like, well, do you believe that I actually hold yours? Are you actually willing to get on my back and walk across uncertainty with me in ways that actually model belief? And here's the whole idea. Believing is releasing. Believing is releasing. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter, who was present at this dinner, he said, he, he wrote this. He says, we, we cast all of our anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for us. So here's what we do is instead of like in the first century uh, casting a fishing net, it was like this big operation to like, uh, like throw it into the water. And like you couldn't just bring that thing right back. Once it was in, it was, it was in. And you were like, okay, let's catch some fish. But here's what we do with our modern sensibilities. We go all rod and reel casting on Jesus is what we'll do is we'll come to a place, a setting like this, or we'll go to a community group, or we'll talk to someone who is spiritual, and like we'll kind of throw our, our fears out there for a little bit, and then we'll leave it out there just long enough to see whether or not God does what we think that He should do, and then we're like, boom, 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 boom. We bring it back in, and then you go to your apartment after a setting like this, and you're just as burdened. And why is that? That's because you, when you are actually praying, like praying the way that God designed you to pray, the way that God desires you to pray, you ought to feel peace. Like people will say, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. I was like, okay, well, do you feel any peace? They're like, no. And I was like, well, you're not done yet. You need to keep going. And that's why those moments at the end of a message, when there's an invitation to respond, are holy ground. They're intended to move us to a place to where we are are physically, spiritually casting our cares on God and saying, you're the only way that I'm going to get peace. And this is important because here's the deal. If you base your belief just in your circumstances, you're going to be like a ship without an anchor, drifting out to sea. And Jesus' proposal to us is this. Get your eyes over the horizon of the next 24 hours and get them up to the next 24 centuries. That's, that's where I want your heart to focus. And to help our hearts, he points us to heaven. He goes on, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? All right, so we're confused right here. We think that this means that Jesus is going up to heaven and he's going all Chip and Joanna Gaines on a mansion that he's building for me and it's going to have granite countertops and you know a view of the waterway. No, that's not what this is talking about. Heaven's going to be real nice. But what he's talking about right here is, the, why do I have to go and make a place for you? Because unless I go to the cross, there won't be a place for you. He's not talking about going up into heaven and building you some nice, illustrious mansion. He's talking about going to the cross to die for your sins, to purchase your pardon, so you can have a place in his presence. He's saying, that's what this is about. You don't get, you don't get heaven if you don't get me. And you don't get me if I don't first come to you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. So I want you to notice how the purpose of heaven is not the place, but it's the person. Why am I doing all this? Jesus says, so you can be with me. So I can be with you. You see, when Jesus talks about heaven, it's always in the context of being with God. And there was just this, this thought that just ran me over like a freight train this week. And it's, it's true, I think, it's true for me, I think it's true for all of us, it's probably true for you, is that we need God, but we don't want God. God wants us, but He doesn't need us. Do we see something wrong with this? It's like, I, I ought to, I want, here's what I pray that the prayer of Coastway Church would be, that we would want God as bad as we need Him. And that we would pray that our desire would, would, would somehow catch up to our deliverance. If you think about it, I'm, I'm, not, sure, I'm not sure how this is going uh, so wrong and so south, but we're totally blowing it on how we talk about and think about heaven. It's like, oh, I've got these chubby little babies over here, and they're hanging out on clouds, and they're kind of floating around. They've got these harps. They're wearing diapers. And it's like, that's not my life goal, man. I don't know about you, but that I grew up a, a cultural Christian, which basically means that I was religiously lost. I thought that I could earn my salvation by being good, knowing the answers, and keeping the rules. Okay, so that's where a lot of Myrtle Beach is. That's where a lot of the world is, is we think we can earn our way to God. That was me growing up. And so I thought that heaven was going to be a really long, boring church service. I was like, I, I'm not ambitious about that. I'm not really fired up about that. What will heaven be like? I, I want to I tell you, this is what heaven will be like. It will be highly relational. That's what you need to know. So Jesus, here's how he talks about heaven. As a loving home with a happily married bride and groom, a good and gracious father, and a whole bunch of family. That's what it's going to be like. So I want to talk about all three real quick. First, heaven will be like a perfect marriage. Again, verses 2 through 3, it's loaded with Jewish marriage language. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. So what would happen in Jewish culture is there would be basically two steps in the progression of a marriage commitment. There would be what's called the betrothal, and then there would be what's called the becoming, the becoming one. So basically, the betrothal was a, a period of departure where the couple was married legally, but they were apart physically. And you're like, that sounds terrible. It's, it was just custom and it was culture at this point. And during this time, here's what you need to see. The groom would do two things. He would pay a price and he would give a gift. 
And so what's this whole, in my father's house there are many rooms, I'm going to build a place for you, what's that stuff all about? Well, in Jewish culture, what the son would do is he would propose to the bride, they would be betrothed, and he would go back to his father's house, and he would build this addition that was connected to the father's estate. And that would be the place, and he would pay the price, all the materials, everything necessary, all the labor to do that, and it would cost a lot. And, he would, and that was part of the betrothal, is I'm going to build this, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring my bride together. But in the meantime, he wouldn't just pay the price, he would give a gift. And so the gift would be, you know, it could be you know, some jewelry, it could be some amount of money, and it, what it would do is it would be a solemn seal of the marital commitment. It was the groom saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be faithful to you. And here's what I want you to see. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place, He's saying, I'm going to pay a price. I'm going to pay a price that you deserve to pay, but you can't afford to pay. And I'm going to cover it for you. And that was the cross. And what is the gift that Jesus gives us in the confusing in between? Between His crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, presiding over the universe, risen, ruling, and reigning. It's like we can't see Him. What is He... What was the gift that he gave us? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus' love. The Holy Spirit reminds us of his love. So even in his departure, he is still with us. And then after the betrothal, the two, they would reunite and they would become one through physical intimacy and holistic unity. Check this out. In the Father's house. So you want to know, what is heaven like? I'll tell you what heaven is like. Heaven is like a perfect marriage where there's no division and there's full provision in the spousal love of Jesus. And our mission as a church, it's to seek Jesus and bring renewal. And what bring renewal means is instead of us on us waiting to get to heaven, we're going to bring heaven down to us. That's what bring renewal is all about. And so what we got to start thinking about, churches, we got to start stop thinking about, man, when I get there, it'll be great. How about in the meantime, let's bring heaven down so that we can see God's space overlap with ours and experience heaven now. That's what Jesus prayed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how does heaven come down? I'll, I'll tell you how heaven comes down. It's when married couples fight for our spouses more than fighting with our spouses. It's when we're the first to fall on the sword. It's when we're the ones that say, I was wrong and I need to change. I'm the problem right here. And I'm going to pattern my marriage around Jesus' sacrificial commitment to his bride. And I just want to ask spouses, if you're married in here, and if you're not married, pray for us who are, okay? Because we need a lot of help. But what is one specific way that you can sacrificially serve your spouse this week? Did you know that heaven is located in that moment? That's what heaven looks like. Next, heaven will be like a good and gracious father. You see, when you marry into a healthy family, you get a loving father. And that's good news. That's good news. Psalm 68.5 says that God will be a father to the fatherless. Those who are physically fatherless. Those who are functionally fatherless. And I will say, yes, we're all about Jesus at Coastway Church. He's the hero of every sermon. And He's the one who helps us lift our hearts to heaven. But being all about Jesus means being all about what Jesus was all about. And Jesus was all about, how do I bring you to the Father? How do I bring my bride home to my dad? 
And so what Jesus wants us to primarily know about God is that he's a father. That's how he describes God over and over 20 times in this chapter, 100 times in this book, 189 times in the New Testament. And I'll, I'll tell you this, your God view, whether you realize it or not, your God view is directly connected to your dad view. Some of you had a terrific dad. I mean, he, he discipled you. He disciplined you. He was devoted to mom. He pursued you. He provided for you. And I just want to say, if that's you, there, there ought to be two responses that rise out of your heart. Humility and gratitude. Gratitude because, understand, that's not common. That is not the majority experience for most people today. And humility because, you want to know why the world's so jacked up? Because so many didn't actually get that experience. And, and if you got that experience and you had a dad and he loved you and he was devoted to you and he was devoted to mom, oh, praise God for that. But just understand there's some unique obstacles for those around you who didn't have that experience. And, and that leads to the, the other type of dad. Maybe you had a tragic dad. And a tragic dad, it's not necessarily dad's fault, but there was a disease, there was a disaster, there was a disruption that, that, that took dad away from you too soon or in some way that left a void in your heart, and you're just like reeling, like, how do I recover from this? Or maybe, maybe you had a terrible dad. Maybe your dad was absent. Maybe he abused you. Maybe he committed adultery. Maybe he was, he was not there for you. And if so, you just got to understand, that's not, the, that, that's not the Heavenly Father that we're talking about right here. Others, maybe you had a timid dad. And your, your dad, it's just like, passive, pointless. Like, what's the point? Like, there's dad, okay. Kind of doing whatever dad wants to do. Not really standing in the gap for me. Not really doing something that's going to help nurture me. Not doing something that's going to help build me up. And here's, here's where this intersects with what Jesus is talking about. Father wounds. Understand, they cut to the deepest parts of the human heart. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie Pinocchio, but basically what happens in Pinocchio, there's this really weird scene where he has to go down into the depths of the ocean to face this sea creature, and he gets swallowed by the sea creature, and whenever he goes into the stomach of the sea creature, his dad is there. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. It's like, that makes a lot of sense. Because when you go to the deepest, darkest parts of your life, you're going to come face to face with your dad for most people. Without question, the number one cause of socially and spiritually troubled hearts in society are father wounds. Kids who grow up without fathers are four times more likely to be poor, significantly higher risk for substance abuse, to get pregnant as a teenager, and to serve jail time. And I just got to say, this is the first time in our nation's history when more kids are growing up without dads than with them. And so what is heaven like? Well, it's, it's a good and it's a gracious Father who loves you and will never leave you, and His commitment is unconditional. And you're like, how does heaven come down? I'll tell you how heaven comes down. Dads, you go home and you chase your children's hearts. You pursue them through those awkward, difficult stages, and you point them to Christ. You let them see you holding mom's hand. You let them see you flirting with mom. You let them see you praying. You let them see you opening up your Bible. Why? Because eternity is at stake. 
And if we want to know how, how can Coastway Church change the world, it's by dad stepping in and stepping up and saying, hey, I'm going to take the lead and I'm going to pursue my kids. And if you've got father wounds, I would just say, hey, stop measuring your heavenly father by your earthly father and let your heavenly father be your ultimate dad. Jesus is offering us the cure to troubled hearts that he will bring us home to our good and gracious father. Next, heaven will be like a big loving family. The reason why there are many rooms is because God the Son wants to bring as many men, women, and children as possible to God the Father to join His forever family. And so how does heaven come down? By gathering regularly and eagerly with your church family. By saying, God, hey, I want to have the attitude of David in Psalm 122.1 when he prayed, and he said, I, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is preparation for eternity whenever we gather in Jesus' name. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. You aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. You aim at earth and you'll get neither. Verse 4, Jesus says, And you know the way to where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas, he's referred to as doubting Thomas because he always had these doubts. He gives me a lot of hope. He really does because he was honest. What do you do if you have doubts? What do you do if you have questions? I'll tell you what you do. You pick them up and you bring them to Jesus. And you give them to him and you say, hey, Jesus, I don't have to have all the answers. I just need the answerer. And if you will walk with me through this uncertainty, then I'm going to continue to follow you. That's what Thomas did. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, I am the way. What does that mean? This is Jesus saying, I am the only way to God. I'm the only way to God. And this is probably the most insulting thing that could be said to modern Westerners, us, who worship at the altar of what might be called expressive individualism. I am an individual, I think my thoughts, I feel my feelings, and that ultimately is what determines truth. That's what ultimately determines reality. And so we, we bristle at this because the chief sin is to tell someone they're wrong or what they must do. And so what we do is we like to go all Frank Sinatra and proudly declare, I did it my way. Meanwhile, half of us can't drive 30 minutes without using GPS. By the way, did you know that 60% of people can't go a week without using GPS? It's like, God, I can't find my way to Hobby Lobby, but you better believe I know how to get to heaven. It's like, how, how brilliant are we? When people like to argue and say all religions are the same, the response is, you've studied none of these, and you do not know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're all the same except for what they teach about God, sin, heaven, hell, man. Other than that, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty similar. One of, the, one of the ways that this is often propagated by relativists and universalists is this idea of an elephant. You've got these blind men who are in a room with an elephant, and basically one, one man goes up, he feels the tail, and he's like, this is a snake. Another runs into like the side and says, this is a wall. The other feels the tusks and says, this is a spear. The, and uh, they, it's like, well, they're all right. They're all right. They're all right. Yeah, unless the elephant tells us he's an elephant. And that's what the incarnation was. 
It was God stepping into the story and saying, this is who I am. And you can have your feelings, you can have your opinions, but that doesn't change. I am the way. And God opens our eyes. He reveals Himself and He says, follow me, marry me, worship me. I am the way home. And if you want to know where you are going, you need to get into God's Word. You see, so many of us, we would like to think, hey, I know the way, but we're actually confused about the way. We don't know where we're going. And here's how you can discover the way, here's how you can follow the way, is you go to the Word of God to hear the way of God. It's like, before you get turned around, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Word, I'm going to discover God's will, and I'm going to know the way, I'm going to be a lot less confused. I dare you. I dare you. For the next seven days, put an alarm on your phone to spend 15 minutes in God's Word every single day. It's a standing appointment. The clarity that you will get will be remarkable. Next, Jesus says, I am the truth. What this means is that Jesus is the ultimate reality. So what is truth? Well, truth is reality. What is reality? Reality is what is real. And I think one of the iconic illustrations of this in culture is that scene on The Matrix whenever Morpheus appears to Neo and he has these two pills and he's holding out these two pills to Neo and he says, all right, Neo, here's the deal. There is a reality that you are blinded to at this point. And if you take the red pill, your eyes are going to be opened to what reality actually is. But if you take the blue, the blue pill, you can wake up in your bed and you can go on living in ignorance. And he's like, what's it going to be? And then Neo, he, he takes the red pill, and you're like, oh, it just got real. It just got real. He's about to see how things really work. It's that moment in the, scene, in the, in the movie where you're just like, oh, this is going to be good. And it is because in that moment, his eyes are open to truth. He's able to see reality. And I just want to tell you, that's, that's the thought that goes through my heart when I see someone turn from sin and transfer trust to Jesus Christ alone. It's like, it just got real they're going to be able to make sense of relationships now. They're going to be able to make sense of finances now. They're going to be able to make sense of conflict now. They're going to be able to make sense of the future now. I, I love, um, and here's, here's the thing, you know, there's two ways that we can go with this. Um, we can be uh, imprisoned or we can be free. We can be imprisoned to this illusion of what reality is or we can be free to see what it actually truly is. So the imprisonment is the escapist. Have you, have you ever wondered why we're always trying to escape reality? Why we're always trying to augment reality and make it feel better than it actually is? The, the average uh, American is spending two and a half hours a day on social media. The average American is spending three hours a day in front of a television watching, streaming, or playing video games. And, and the question is like, why? It's because we're not okay with the way that the world is. And our hearts are reaching for something better. Our hearts are re reaching for something bigger. And it, it makes you wonder, like, why, why are we doing that? And again, C.S. Lewis, he says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so the Christian is the realist. Whereas the escapist says, I don't like this world, I need to escape it. The realist, the Christian says, I broke this world, but Jesus came to fix me and the world. 
And so this is why you can be free. It's because when you, when you take the red pill that is Jesus through repentance and, and faith, is your eyes are open to see something revolutionary that will set you free for the rest of your life. And here it is. I am broken, and I need to receive a lot of grace. Do you realize how much humility would just sweep through culture, sweep through your home if we would just say that and admit that? But it doesn't stop there. I, I'm not just broken. You're broken too. And not only do I need to receive grace, I need to reflect grace. So there was a moment this week that I did something dumb. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Basically, I put something in the microwave that wasn't supposed to go in the microwave. Have you done this? Maybe. Don't act brand new. Maybe you have. But uh, after about 10 seconds of this something being in the microwave that wasn't supposed to be in the microwave and our entire neighborhood starting to smell like Chernobyl, I realized uh, that was not good and I'm going to have to tell Victoria that dumb thing that I did. It's like, hey, Victoria, um, I'm sorry. Um, and I thought, it was dumb. It was dumb. It's like, why did I do that? And I was not looking forward to telling her. I was like, how can I airbrush this so that it doesn't seem so bad? But I ended up just like playing the hand and telling her what happened. And here's what happened. I got hit with a freight train of grace. When I felt like an idiot, her grace toward me was immediate. And here's what I, here's what I want to show you. That's the spousal love of Jesus. Is when you blow it, when you like literally blow up your, your world and you're busted and you're broken and you feel like I don't deserve it. What does Jesus come in do and do is when you feel like an idiot, he gives you grace that is immediate. Hallelujah for the cross. Jesus says, I am the life. So Jesus is the source of life. So we've, I, the more that I think about these I am statements, the more that I realize it's about life. Jesus is trying to bring us out of death and lead us into life. And we've talked about this a couple of times, and I'll just share it one more time, because our hearts need this reminder, but there's two concepts for life in the New Testament. There's bios life, and there's zoe life. And bios life is life for now. It's a quantity of life. It's external. It's physical life. And it shows up nine times in the New Testament. So basically what this is, this is a hope that is from the skin in. It starts externally. Do I feel happy? Am I healthy? If so, I have life. And it's no way to live. As Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain all the bios, but forfeit all the zoe? And that's this next concept of life. It's life forever. It's a quality of life that is internal and spiritual and unconditional and it's from the soul out instead of the skin in. My circumstances don't have to be great. I don't even have to feel good for me to have peace. And this word for life is used 135 times in the New Testament, and it's the life that Jesus died to give to us. It's inside out. It's peace with God. And here's what's amazing. As the source of life, only Jesus can give you life. Only Jesus can give you life. So all of these lesser loves and weaker arms where we're seeking fulfillment are going to leave us. They're going to betray us. You know, and, and it could be popularity. It could be, it could be power. It could be some pleasure. It could be control. But at the end of the day, it's going gonna, it's gonna to promise you the world at first, but it's going to take the world from you at last. And here's what Jesus does. He says, 
In John 10.10, we looked at this several weeks ago, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I'm going to show you how this life is going to come. God shows us His love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. So the source of life, the giver of life, lays down His life so that we could take up life instead of death. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, go ahead and jump to the very end of the chapter, and I want to show you where Jesus says we got to respond and we got to go from here. He says, Rise, let us go from here. So, this is Jesus saying that there is action to take. He's saying, Will you rise with me and will you? Fully believe in me moving forward. And this is what marriage is all about. See, when you marry someone, you're committed, I'm, I'm going to move forward with that someone. And this is why marriage is the best metaphor that we have available to us to know what a relationship with God is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to work. So I just want you to imagine that you are about to exchange vows with your spouse. Some of you have already experienced this day. Others of you, maybe you're looking forward to this day. But instead of thinking about what would I say, what would I say to my spouse, I want you to think about a spouse who would first take the lead and say this to you. I will give you my best in exchange for your worst. A spouse who would say to you, I will pay the price to be with you forever. This is Jesus' vow to his church. This is Jesus' vow to you, to Coastway, to Myrtle Beach, to the entire world. And that's what makes him the way. It's what makes him the truth. It's what makes him the life. And Coastway Church, I pray that we would be a people who fully believe in Jesus. I pray that we, we would be a people who say yes to Jesus' proposal.